This is the Canna Curio Podcast by Cannabis Media, your source for cannabis and hemp license updates directly from the data vault. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Media newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay informed of future episodes and data releases. Welcome to the Cannabis Media Podcast, your source for cannabis and hemp data news. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Ed, since we last spoke, what other news has come through the data vault? Well, Amanda, there are three states we want to focus on this week. So first off, in Florida, we recently added over 5,000 CBD licenses. So these are all food establishments at either the retail or wholesale level, and what the regulator did is they just required the license holders to add CBD on their license. So, uh, and they recently started conducting inspections as well. So it's a program that's really underway. The one interesting thing I found in going through the data is there is one license for an alligator meat processor. So please keep an eye out for CBD infused alligator meat. Oh my gosh. I hope it tastes good. Uh, do you think other states will follow this model? It'll probably taste like chicken, um, but uh, I, I don't know if other states will follow. We've kept an eye on Louisiana, which was sort of the first state to deputize all these retailers in their state and say, hey, if you want to sell CBD, you got to let us know. So it tends to be mostly big chain stores. If you look at it, it's a public supermarket in Florida and uh, you know other big names that sell lots of other heavily licensed products like fuel or lottery tickets, et cetera. So we'll see. Um, after Florida, Maine finally issued 31 conditional licenses covering cultivation, manufacturing, and retail. From what I've read, many are studying Maine as the state that took the longest to launch their program since it was approved. Uh, historically, they've had eight medical licenses only, but a ton of caregivers, over 2,300. What's been interesting in looking at those 31 conditional licenses is that some of the caregivers have secured those retail licenses. So in some ways, it's a little bit like California where you had these uh, businesses that were collections of caregivers that then turn into license holders. So I think in some ways that's going to be a little bit similar in Maine. Yeah, the ever precarious caregiver uh, model. It's definitely uh, been prevalent in a few markets, California, Mm. Michigan. But what happens next to these licenses, Ed? From what I've seen, they've got to jump through some hurdles to get local approval. But I believe Maine is trying to take steps to avoid what has happened in Massachusetts, where the people who wanted to get licenses had to pay what many consider a bribe to the local town, maybe buy them a fire truck, sponsor the fireworks on July 4th, build the park, all sorts of things to get the uh, the letter from the town. So we're hoping that uh, that doesn't happen up there because it, it just slows down the lives and slows down the program. So, and then finally in Oklahoma, they have continued to issue licenses. So 365 more went into the database recently, which brings their total up to a whopping 9,936 active licenses, most of the country. Uh, The new ones that came in were distributors, 37 manufacturers, 54 dispensaries, and 271 cultivators. Wow. Oklahoma has been the market to watch over the last year in terms of growth. Um, Do you think we've seen the point of saturation? yet? Well, it's hard to say. One of the things that I've been tracking is looking at the number of licenses issued by quarter. And on the cultivation side, it looks like it's declining. Every quarter seems to be less than the one that came before it. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens. What I did see just uh, this morning is that 
they're starting to consider some rules in place to space out the distance uh, that these establishments can be to churches, schools, et cetera. I think they're going to move from 1,000 feet to 3,000 feet. But even if they do that, they've grandfathered all the existing ones in. And currently, at least you know by my math, they have one dispensary for every 1,669 residents in the state. That's insane. Yeah, compared to one for every half million residents in New York. So um, it's uh, I can't imagine how many more they're really going to be able to support before it starts to come crashing down. But, you know, time will tell. Yeah, only time, only time will tell. Well, when we come back from our commercial break, we'll be joined by Chaz Hermanowski of Growth Bags, one of our cannabis media power users. Stay tuned. Growth Bags is one of the most exciting companies in the entire cannabis packaging industry. And the reason for that is we've taken a totally unique and novel approach to approaching how to package our cannabis products. All of our packaging is actually tailor engineered around the physiology of the cannabis plant. Welcome back. On today's show, we're joined by Chaz Harmanowski. He's a Rocky Mountain manager at Grove Bags and is one of Cannabis Media's power users. Welcome, Chaz. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So, Chaz, uh, as we're introducing you to our audience here, uh, how long have you been in the industry? Uh, technically, I've been in the industry for about two years now as far as the actual workforce in the industry. But in reality, I've actually been in the industry for six years uh, with me starting the Cannabis Symposium Club at my uh, college, Babson College back in Boston. So with that, I kind of got thrown into the just culture and network of the cannabis industry really early on while I was still in school as far as networking with lawyers, doctors, and other industry professionals, um, just putting this event together every year at college. And that's actually how I uh, first connected with Grove Bags as far as having uh, my CEO, Jack Grover, come to the Cannabis Symposium and speak right even before the product even launched on market. Oh, wow. And what, what prompted you to open or to start the, the Cannabis Symposium at your college? Um, I was getting to that point in industry where cannabis was being seen as medicine and it was on the docket for Boston as far as being approved as medical. It was really up and coming, but there was no cannabis centric club on our campus as far as the one that actually brought people together for the industry side of things. Obviously, people on my campus all smoked marijuana and all that, but as far as the actual networking side and business side of it hadn't been built out, and Babson is the number one school for entrepreneurship in the country. So in my mind, I'm like, we need to be the first people to have this and to do this as far as being the pioneers of this industry on our campus itself. Um, took a little bit of negotiating with the school to uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> get, get them to see eye to eye with it, but uh, after a little finessing, uh, it got pushed through. We have had four great years of the symposium while I was there, and then I passed it off and still going strong. That's incredible. And what were you doing before you decided to get into cannabis? I was actually going to go to law school, but then a uh, cannabis company, a startup called Calix Containers based out of Boston, reached out to me after graduation and asked for me to come aboard for interim time to help with market testing and focus groups and all that fun stuff. So I decided to put law school on hold for a bit. And uh, went and joined Cogs Containers and worked for them for a good half a year. And then at that point, I actually went and started freelancing copywriting in Southeast Asia for six months. So I backpacked Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, writing for a bunch of companies. And that's how I started working for Grow Bags as far as did their, all their website copy, blog copy, packaging copy. Um, so that was kind of my first work with Grow Bags at that time. Uh, and then going back from Asia, I moved right to Denver and dove into the industry. 
I mean, what a terrific way to learn about the industry, come on board, and really get an understanding of how the company is run from the kind of from the ground up. I was hoping next you could tell us a little bit more about Grove Bags, the company, and, and what makes them unique. Yeah, 100%. So Grove Bags created a proprietary foam blend. Uh, we call it Turp Lock. Um, it's our proprietary trademark name for it, but it's truly first of its kind. So it's a six-layer film blend that is built around the physiology of the cannabis plant itself. Um, a like, little anecdote we like to use is if you ever go to the grocery store and uh, you're in that store and you're looking at the lettuce aisle, right? And you're seeing all that lettuce on the shelf and it's in that packaging and it's fresh for two weeks in that packaging. But if you were to buy one of those lettuce packages and bring it home and put that lettuce on your counter, in two hours it's going to start wilting outside that package. And it's not because of any special nitrogen flushing or package they put in there. It's just the polymer blend they built around that physiology to maintain the nutrients, the color, the aesthetic. Um, they do that for oranges. They do it for bananas. So it's called atmosphere. Modified atmospheric packaging. So we did the same thing for cannabis, where we took a step back and thought, what does cannabis need to be protected for the long term? Um, so it's a six-layer film blend that's UV protected, since UV rays are the biggest degrader of cannabis in the space, degrading THC to CBN within minutes. Um, anti-static, um, also very key. I don't know if you smoke cannabis yourself, but if you ever go into your bag of weed or your pop top after um, using it for a bit, you see that like, kind of dusty residue at the bottom, the powder. That's all the trichomes that got ripped off your product by the packaging itself. Um, you can't put that good stuff back on the product afterwards, which is the potency, the flavor, medicinal benefit. Um, odor blocking, obviously key for compliancy and obviously puncture proof for long-term storage and transport to make sure nothing breaks open. Um, but the two coolest layers in my mind, if you think back to uh, seventh grade science class at lesson about osmosis, um, the bags actually regulate the internal oxygen inside and the internal relative humidity um, by outgassing it um, through the actual membrane of the polymer itself. So it keeps that oxygen low in the bag to prevent those terpenes from being oxidized. Um, and it also keeps the relative humidity in that 58% range, which we have found is the perfect relative humidity range for terpenes to thrive as far as the flavor, medicinal benefit, taste, color. So as far as putting product in our bags, you have the peace of mind of knowing that even a year later, if you open that bag, it's going to be the same weight, the same color, the same potency. You're not losing any of that just because of the packaging you're putting it in. Um, so that ability to actually store cannabis for the long term and make sure that what you're selling at the end of the day is what you grew is so key for brands, especially right now with saturation in the market that you guys brought up in Oklahoma, where it's the most detrimental thing to a brand if you grow a quality, amazing product, but then when it reaches the end consumer, it is not what it, it, you package in the, in the supply chain. So they're enjoying product that wasn't what you intended them to grow and to pretend them to consume. So, Chaz, um, in, in terms of the different parts of the cannabis value chain from grow to manufacture to retail, point of sale, where have um, you really seen the receptivity? You know, does it start you know, right out at cultivation where it, it, you use this technology or does it happen more at the store or is it really throughout the, the whole value chain where people can use this turp lock technology? Yeah, so our whole value prop is we have you covered from cultivation to consumption, um, the entire supply chain of cannabis. But most of our business is focused on the cultivator side of things, as we've been called the cultivator's choice. But it's so key to do that due diligence on your back end to make sure that, one, you're reducing your overhead costs that can't be expensed through 280E. And then secondly, that 
you're making sure that product is protected in that back end before it even gets out to customers. That's why we have our liners, which fit into the bins or drums that people use for that initial pull down and pulling product off the plant itself. And that one helps those trichomes stay on the bud by anti-static nature of the liners. But then secondly, it reduces overhead costs in an insane way as far as some dispensary out here in Colorado. I was having three people clean eight different bins each day between batches and spending about $70 probably per cleaning with the amount of hours going into it where they're now using our liners where there's no cleaning necessary after the batches and it just streamlines the back end from that pull down to the dry to the trim. Um, same with our wicked bags for curing for our turkey bag replacement. So same exact price point as a turkey bag, if not a little cheaper, made out of turf lock film. Um, a lot of people don't know that turkey bags that were made for your oven on Thanksgiving, I don't know why you put your product in there, actually leach off trichomes from your product. So all these cultivators who've been growing for 10 years, I'm like, do you notice how your turkey bag gets a little yellow after use? They're like, uh-huh. I'm like, that's because it's leaching off the trichomes and putting microplastics on your product. And they're blown away as far as like, they had no idea about that. Um, so Chastity, it seems like you just based on your description, it, it seems like it's a pretty revolutionary change because you went back to figure out, you know, what are the things that are really going to impact the quality of the product and sort of layered in, if you will, excuse upon that technology into these bags. So what's been the market reception? Because if you're telling you know, our listeners that they can extend the shelf life of their product safely and effectively, I imagine that's got a pretty good ROI component when you're out there trying to sell to people. It really is. The hardest part, honestly, is just the educational side of it because people look at the bag and like, oh, it's just a bag. But in reality, it's a microclimate. Um, so we like to say a lot of the time we sell technology, not packaging, um, because technology is the most important part as far as the packaging science aspect of our packaging, where the key parts are one, mold reduction as far as mold prevention, which is really key in states like Alabama and Georgia with high humidity levels, terpene preservation, but the most important thing is weight retention, where if you go to the dispensary nowadays, um, you're going to go buy an eighth and they're going to put 3.6, 3.7 in there just to account for moisture loss. As far as when you get home, it's going to be 3.5 because of that moisture is going to evaporate from the bag in that short amount of time. Um, so the ability to actually package exactly what you want to sell and not have to overpack an $8.1.2, so that adds up so quickly over time. So the bags essentially pay back themselves and then some as far as the liners reducing cleaning on the back end or wicked bags auto curing your weed and burping it yourself so you don't have someone going for hours every day to burp product manually anymore to the ability to actually make sure that what you're sending out is going to retain its moisture and that weight so you're getting paid for what you're sending out great now uh chaz you mentioned that um you know you've had some exposure with this product in markets like Oklahoma and whatnot. But I, I was curious, do you have any other new launches, markets, initiatives? I mean, this sounds like a big uh, a big play for Grow Bags, but anything else going on like, you know, hemp and cannabis? You know, what else is on the, uh, the docket for the team? Well, yeah, you were talking about the Oklahoma market earlier, and you're so right as far as the saturation of it. Um, we launched the Super Sack um, almost a year ago now for the Oklahoma market, specifically for hemp and biomass. The SuperSac holds 400 pounds of product where it allows these farmers to actually preserve their product and get it to refinement or wait for prices to go up to distribute it. Um, but as far as some new products coming up in our docket right now, we, are, we just launched our multi-lock CR exit bag series, so our own custom exit bag line. 
Um, we're also launching single-use joint pouches uh, next month. So those are going to be awesome as far as making sure that that joint that you're buying from the dispensary doesn't get dried out and brittle and that it's the same quality, consistent flavor, taste every single time. Um, being a very key part as far as joints are seen as the hot dog of the industry. Everyone has them. But you want to make sure that a hot dog is a quality hot dog every single time. But as far as new initiatives, we have an updated referral program, updated distributor programs to expand our distribution capabilities of our product across the state and across um, the country itself. Um, so a lot of exciting things going on in Grove Bags. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's great. And thanks for giving us the, the background on Grove Bags and, and also on Turplock Technology. I've certainly learned a lot today. How about you, Amanda? Yeah, no, I've learned a ton about uh, turf block. I didn't realize that cultivators were actually using turkey bags as ways to preserve preserve cannabis, which uh, to me, I just, you know, it blows my mind. But um, Chaz, I wanted to kind of switch gears here a little bit and see, you know, some, what are some of the ways that you and your team utilize cannabis media? Sounds like you've had a lot of success over the last, you know, few months that you've been with the organization, but you would love to learn. What, what are some of the ways that you utilize our, our platform? Of course, as far as cannabis is incredible, it really does the research for our sales teams. The sales team can focus on actually selling, not doing the research ourselves. So we use it from sourcing and updating our compliance records for regulations for our packaging. Um, we use it to build out leads lists and break it down by region as far as across the team. Each team member has their own region they focus on. So it's great for that as far as honing down on different areas and coming into contact with people who weren't on our radar initially, or we didn't have the actual contact information for to reach out to. So it's really opened the door for us as far as just the ability to expand our sales reach and the ability to touch base with these people who we wouldn't have contact info otherwise. Um, the fact that it's specifically geared for the cannabis industry is incredible, and we find so much value in that. I'm so happy to hear that. And I, in your experience, how does this compare to other sales tools that you've used before? It honestly really like doesn't compare as far as it's so unique and an animal of its own. Um, we obviously have our, <laughs> our own, we obviously have our own CRM platform and whatnot. We use PipeDrive, um, but that just like helps us track what we're selling and doing. It doesn't really help us make those sales or generate those leads. So especially in a time like right now with the whole pandemic, um, climate going on and all these different events being canceled from Hall of Flowers to MJ BizCon New Orleans to Indo Expo, all these events that we love going to and showing face at and generating all these awesome leads from. And has really taken the front and center role of our lead generation at this point just because we're all working remotely and not able to go to these in-person events anymore. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a fantastic point. Our, our new current, you know, work from home climate, um, you know, it's a big adjustment for for businesses, especially too when your primary outreach is going to be outbound uh, prospecting, in person prospecting, and, and attending these events. So, you know, exactly. That in mind, yeah. Well, I mean, well, yeah. The, the actual um, email template builder on um, the platform itself is incredible as far as making super aesthetic emails that resonate and help educate. Because the best part of being in person is being able to talk someone through the product and what turf lock is and help have them understand it, which is one of the biggest struggles as far as something with so many features and benefits. And so the ability to make some awesome templates on cannabis to send out that really go through and break down the different features and benefits is going to be a big help to us. Amazing. I mean, you had literally answered the question before I even was going to ask it. I mean, any, tip, <laughs> any additional tips and tricks you wanted to share? I mean, that's uh, it. Tips, tips and tricks. Let's see. Well, I would say uh, whoever is the admin on the cannabis platform, definitely go into uh, the settings, the tag section. 
options only admins can do that to add tags and ask your team what tags they want added to the platform that they want to utilize as far as helping them organize and sort their leads. Um, so that's very key. So as I always reach out to my team asking if they have any new tags they want added, definitely use the filters to hone in and tailor your outreach in a more authentic way. As far as you can like tailor it by like city or county and just like make that little change in the email copy to be that county and it just resonates so much more as far as people going, oh, this email was written for me. Um, and then definitely make sure your pages are fresh when building out a cannabis email template. As far as last week, I went in to finish up a template and didn't realize I was signed up and I went to save it and had to restart it. So make sure you're definitely signed on when making templates. Yeah. I mean, great, great points, great features. And that's, you know, why we want to, you know, do this podcast so that we can uh, share kind of our current clients knowledge on what they're using the platform. So hopefully, you know, help our other subscribers on uh, their future outreach. So, Chaz, dialing back uh, a little bit to uh, give a, a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view, especially since, as you said at the outset, you've been in this industry for a while from a few vantage points. I'm curious, what trends are you seeing at play in the, in, in the industry now, and are there any markets that you think are interesting or worth taking a look at? Yeah. Um, as far as hemp, with the passing of the farm bill almost a, a little over a year now ago is done wonders for the hemp segment as far as no one could have predicted the amount of explosion as far as licenses just dedicated for hemp um, as far as if you were saying in Oklahoma before but now other states on the east coast like Northern Carolina joining the fold for hemp um, so that's a huge part of supply but like I said before refinement's a big issue right now where there's all the supply but a very limited capacity for refinement um, so we're definitely seeing a lot of players trying to get into that refinement space in order to handle that supply of hemp in the market um, and also people are just realizing they need to do a better job protecting their product as information becomes more readily available. A big problem in the industry is information is very fragmented. There's no centralized source of information to go to to educate yourself, um, which is now slowly changing with new platforms coming online where people are realizing that using a turkey bag to cure your product isn't the best way to maintain its potency or have a consistent cure every single time. Um, as far as just the industry itself, it's growing in the way where if you look at the liquor store industry, you walk into the liquor store and any bottle on the shelf right there, 20% of the cost of that bottle is the packaging itself. Where in the cannabis space, it's 8%. Um, so it's a very huge <laughs> distinction as far as packaging costs across the space, as far as what people are doing for their packaging before it was just you know, the cheapest bag from China possible, the lowest like 0.001 cent bag, and people are realizing that's not the way to go as far as making sure that your brand makes a potent impression every time and stays consistent on the quality level every single time. Yeah, especially on the sort of that impression management thing because I could see how as Terp Block and all this technology grows and becomes more prominent, you're going to get people hopefully asking for it or demanding it and saying, listen, well, <laughs> I use these other... <laughs> cheap, you know, bad quality uh, tools on this asset that I have poured, you know, thousands or millions of dollars into. So it's good. You know, don't yeah. send it to me. Don't send it to me unless it's in the turp lock, right? I mean, I guess that's what you're hoping to get to at some point. Well, yeah, we're hoping to set a benchmark in the space where they spoke at this cannabis policy conference weeks ago. And as far as making sure that consumers are protected at the end of the day, where we're having a benchmark for packaging in the space, a standard for packaging in the space that raises the bar for everyone. So we we're trying to make grow bags that standard as far as the ability to preserve your actual product and 
for end consumers, someone could buy an eighth and, well, someone can smoke that eighth in a day, but someone else could take a month to smoke that eighth. So you want to make sure in that frequency of use time that that product is still maintaining its medicinal benefit, its potency, especially in states like Alabama and Florida where humidity is such a big issue that it's not growing mold on it after they purchase it and they're not smoking mold later on in the day, which is a really big thing as far as keeping consumers safe. Yeah, I mean, consumers, keeping consumers safe, it's our, our number one priority here within the industry. And it's so, it's it feels great to, to know that there are companies like Grove Bags and, you know, passionate sales uh, individuals such as yourself, you know, that really want to provide a resource to the, the community versus just, you know, selling a package that they made and not really caring about, you know, kind of what the impacts it, it will have on the, the actual production of, of the plant. So, you know. Well, we're de- yeah, we're definitely seeing the actual culture change with everything going on right now as far as packaging from China being very hard to get. So we're getting calls every day now um, as far as we're a USA-made company as far as everything's made in Cleveland. Um, so we're getting calls every day. People are like, oh, we're out of gram bags. Oh, we're out of eighth bags. And I'm like, oh, have you heard about turf block? They're like, no, we just need bags. So it's getting to the point now where people just need packaging. And we're one of the only suppliers in the space with everything going on right now that has a consistent supply chain of packaging coming out. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, with that, I, I think the... USA made growth bags, turp lock technology. Uh, anyone that uh, has any questions or, you know, would like to learn more about growth bags, please, please, please reach out to Chaz. Uh, he's uh, one of the best. Um, and we just want to say thank you so much, Chaz, for, for joining us today. Um, we really do look forward to hopefully seeing you after quarantine here. But thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. And thank you for everything you guys do. So, Ed, transitioning over, what's coming up next? Who are our upcoming guests or any Canacurio updates we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, on the data side, this week the team's been working in a couple jurisdictions. Uh, Nebraska rolled out their uh, hemp information, so we are adding in information on cultivators, brokers, processors, and a testing lab. Uh, Virginia Hemp, similarly, we've got some new cultivators and processors. And then perhaps the most interesting story is the West Virginia Medical Marijuana Program, we were able to get a list of the applicants, you know, those who've applied to get a license, and it covers the whole value chain, one lab, 44 cultivators, 190 dispensaries, and 41 manufacturers. And the interesting thing is a lot of these applicants have gone for many licenses, some as high as 29. So the team will be digging through that and uh, that'll be part of the next Canacurio update. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on today's podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Uh, Stay tuned for more updates from the Data Vault. Thanks for tuning in to the Canacurio podcast by Cannabis Media. Your source for cannabis and hemp license updates directly from the Data Vault. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Media Newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay informed about future episodes and data releases.